Hi there, I'm Karen Dunn of KMD Productions. From the equipment manufacturers to the engineers to the business people behind the scenes. Over the years, every member of the Pro Audio Corner of the music industry have become family to me. And it's my job to bring the whole eclectic crew together. Each episode, I'll introduce you to one of these characters and open a window into my world of creating community in Pro Audio. Thanks for tuning in to One and Done. Today, I'm talking to Zoe Thrall, Director of Studio Operations at the Hideout Recording Studio in Henderson, Nevada. Hi, Karen. How are you Zooming today? (laughs) (laughs) It's not how you start. I lead this. Okay. Um, First of all, let's uh, just dive right into Let's talk about the music scene in Las Vegas. What's it like? Well, nothing right now because... Nothing's open yet. <laughs> what's it? Well, what's it been like? Because you came from New York. So that must have been, I mean, I can't imagine what it was like to go from New York to Vegas. Yeah, it was a bit of a culture shock. And the music scene is different here. And the number one reason it's different here is because there are so many showrooms that book long-term residency gigs. And, and size of the venue doesn't matter. It could be a small 200-seat even smaller kind of casino floor type thing. They rotate those artists and bands week after week after week, all the way up to your arenas and so forth. So there are a lot of musicians here, a lot of really, really great musicians. And they, it's, you know, there's a huge music scene here, all kinds of genres. Um, It's wonderful. It's it's a pretty special place when it comes to live performance. Mm -hmm. So, well, what was it like moving from New York to Las Vegas? Uh, what, what, what was your biggest, the biggest change for you? Uh, the pace. You know, New York, everyone knows, is a fast-paced city, a lot of high energy. And I think Las Vegas has that image. And maybe on right. the strip it is that. But when you're off the strip, it's a much smaller, you know, it's a cow town still. I mean, you know, it's a modern city, but its roots are, you know, it's a cow town. So I think a lot of that pace still kind of remains in the city. And it took a lot of adjustment for me. And I'm not saying it's wrong or right. It actually, it's actually now that I'm used to it, it's refreshing. Uh Kind of slow down a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what's it been like to be such a conduit for all the Vegas glitz and acts? Because everybody, I would assume at the Palms, everybody went through your studio. We were really, really fortunate. Um, well, you have you have to go back historically. When the Palms was built, the studio at the Palms was built in 2005. It was really the first studio of that caliber to be built here, aside from a very short stint in the late 60s. But uh, there was uh, um, Bill Putman, actually, believe it or not, built a studio here. But, you know, no one had ventured out into this uh, into this world all those years. And so it was a grand experiment at the time, a grand experiment that worked because once it was literally build it and they will come. Mm-hmm. And boy, did they come. We've been had been so fortunate in having incredible talent. I mean, you name any genre, any top 100 artists, they've all been through that studio. And, um, you know, we're really proud of that. So your favorite acts that were there? Oh, it's, you can't add. Okay, that's fine. Fine. Okay. Who's your least favorite act? You want to put that in instead? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, you know, we, uh, I mean, everyone from Michael Jackson to Beyonce to Lady Gaga to, you know, oh my God, the killers, Imagine Dragons. Just, I mean, it just the list is endless. Usher, it goes on, Katy Perry. So, you know. So did they, did they usually stay in the Palms, the hotel? Sometimes, sometimes. When the, when the, the when there were long-term projects like Usher, for example, who would come in for two and a half, three months, mm-hmm. obviously they're staying in the hotel. Where someone like Lady Gaga, who has a residency here, she's already has accommodations because she's working, you know, doing that show. Uh, so no, uh, something like that wouldn't be. So it just depended on the situation, um, how long they were going to be in town, whether it was a record project, whether they were just blowing through, et cetera. Uh-huh. I remember probably the last time I was in Vegas that that you had time and we met at one of the numerous bars there and hung out for a while. Yes. And drank as quickly as possible because I think you had to, somewhere else you had to go. Well, it was one of the many times we got together. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But that, I think that might have been the last time or close to the last time. Now, had the shark been, was the shark in the hotel mm-hmm. that time? Yeah, yeah. What I'm referring to is um, the Palms had gone under an uh, incredible renovation under new ownership, and they put all this beautiful artwork in, including the showpiece of the hotel in the center bar, which was a real hermetically sealed, I guess you'd call it, <laughs> shark. And, and it was big. Like, it wasn't a baby shark. It was oh, big. No. It was a full-size, probably 20-foot thing up there. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. That's what we're referring to for those that don't know what what the hell we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know you are friends with Sam Burkow. Oh, yes. He's doing a project with me right now. Okay. And then uh, Fran Manzella. Yes. So two great guys. Yep. And how did you become friends with both of them? The wonderful world of our little audio community. This is why I love this community so much. So uh, when I was back in New York, let's start with Sam, since you mentioned him first. I had the privilege of co-chairing the Audio Engineering Society convention twice in New York. Well, uh, I met Sam because I brought him on to chair, uh, to be a panelist, actually, on one of the uh, acoustic panels. And we came, became friends very quickly from then. Fran... I, I had crossed paths with many times because he was at Skyline in New York. I had worked at other studios in New York. And just through virtue of being in the pro audio industry and studios in New York, uh, we got to know each other. But it was when uh, I moved to Las Vegas and he designed the studio at the Palms that we became really, really close. And Fran is, and was, I should say, was not only incredible, beautiful friend, beautiful man, his skills as an acoustician, I have to say, were unparalleled in that he gave so much care to his projects. He was very hands-on. He tortured the contractors to make sure they were building things right. <laughs> and then he, even when the place was finished, he, for years afterwards, if I had questions, he'd answer them right away. And we stayed close ever since. So, you know, when you have professionals like that, who then become your friends. That's what makes our industry so special. What does community mean to you? Community, those are people that you feel safe with, that understand you, you understand them. 
some people that you trust and that you can confide in and know that they'll give you good advice if you need it. That's what I feel it is. Yeah. Is there a community of audio people in Vegas? Yes, it's a small community, but there is. And there's a handful of us that, um, you know, stay in touch, are passionate about what we do, and keep each other on our toes. You were in New York. You were at uh, Power Station and Hit Factory. Can you just talk a little bit about that, just your background there? Oh, yeah. Because those are pretty big-name studios to come from. Power Station, you know, is where I got my start. Right out of college, I got an internship, did the typical path of, you know, working my way up through the uh, ranks there. Power Station was an incredible environment to be learning audio in. I was mentored by some of the great engineers of our time, Bob Clearmount, Neil Dorfman, James Farber, you know, Scott Litt, the list goes on and on. And talk about a community that we were really, really close. Um, and this was at a time when engineers were on staff at studios. So, uh-huh. You know, you would be assigned to a session and the session could be a Chevy commercial or it could be Bruce Springsteen session. You know, like you were assigned. It wasn't like the, now today everybody's independent and right. the artist hires the engineer. Back then, the uh, studios assigned the engineer based on what kind of music they're doing, etc. Hip Factory, they were always the friendly competitor and a studio that I really, really admired. I got to know the Germano family who owned the Hip Factory early in my career because once I left Power Station, I worked there as a client and knew the family for many, many, many years. It was only uh, until uh, when Eddie Germano who built the studio, wasn't able to operate it anymore. His son, Troy, who was overseeing the business, came to me and said, do you want to come on board? And that's when I joined Hip Factory. Many years in between there. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, two really incredible studios. Um, also, Hip Factory, you know, also has its own history of hundreds and hundreds of gold and platinum records that have been recorded there. Beautiful facility. It's a shame that it had to close. Yeah. Thankfully, yeah. Power Station was saved by Berkeley College of Music. Post-move, how did you build your new community in Vegas? Because I'm sure you had some established community back east. So now you're at a brand new place. Everything's different. So how did you go about rebuilding this community? Step at a time, like you do anything, I suppose. I, you know, the, there weren't that many people doing audio when I moved here. There was a small studio on the east side of town that had been well-established, catering to you know, mostly local clients, but also you know, the occasional um, you know, big artists that would come through town. I reached out to them initially, but you know, I, I, what I called the Audio Engineering Society to see what members were here. So I connected to some people that way. Uh-huh. You know, just slowly you start meeting folks, you know. It was, it was yeah. hard at first. But now it's it's bigger. It seems like a lot of people are moving to Vegas or oh, somewhere. It's so different now. So now we're talking 16 years later. Yeah. A lot, many more studios have opened. A lot of people from LA have moved here. You know, it's a whole different scene, music scene and audio scene than it was back when I started here. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's stop talking about audio for a minute. I want to talk about food. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Everyone I know is a foodie. I don't understand why all you guys are real friends with me because everyone I know, I mean, 
you you rose i mean every every person i know that i hang out with loves food and most of you cook i hate cooking um why all right see there's a parallel here okay i really see a parallel (laughs) audio folks we like to mix things (laughs) so it's hey i go home people are surprised to hear this my whole chill down from my day is cooking i go home and cook every single night I love it. I know you do a bunch of Greek food, right? Yeah. What's your favorite Greek dish to cook? My favorite Greek dish would be Greek chicken, which we, uh, you know, I marinate in lemon, garlic, oregano, salt, pepper, and uh, and oil. Now, the longer you marinate it, the better the flavors infuse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you can grill or uh, broil it. The key to this dish is to put too much lemon. When you think you've put enough, put more. That's my tip on that dish. Okay. With rice pilaf and a Greek salad and, oh man, beautiful. (laughs) I I was in Greece for three weeks when I was in college. I ate the same meal every night. Which was? Chicken. Oh, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's special, right? Yeah. Um, Do you have a, a, a signature dish? Um, probably that, uh, probably Greek chicken. I've done it so many times, but I also like to cook Asian food. Okay. So Thai to, uh, Vietnamese to any number of things. I cook, I like spicy things. So Thai really lends itself to spicy foods using peppers and, um, you know, rice. I love rice. So yeah. How did you get into Asian food? I don't know, over time, just eating a lot of Asian food at restaurants and then, you know, taking a chance and trying to start to cook it and learn about it. How'd you get into cooking? Oh, well, my family owns a restaurant and still does. <sighs> uh, we, I was in professional kitchens when I was like six years old. Oh, wow. So, you know, that part uh, was kind of inbred in me. So, What are the most important lessons you learned cooking? Uh, trust uh, your taste and your instincts and rely on previous uh, things you've tried to incorporate them into new ideas, new recipes. Okay. So I'm in Vegas. You say, Karen, why don't you come over and I'm going to make dinner. We'll hang out. So tell me what the entire meal is from appetizers through dessert. Okay, you ready? Yep. Okay, appetizer, because I just did this over the weekend. I had a friend in town, so this is what I made for him. Uh, Jalapeno lime chicken wings. Ooh. Grilled octopus and a feta dill dip. Those were the appetizers. Nice. And then the day before, I marinated a pork shoulder, infused it with a ton of stuff, garlic and all kinds of spices and stuff. It marinated for 18 hours and then off the grill, you know, a slow cook on the grill. So not over the heat, but at a steady 325 degrees on the grill at 30 in the morning. And it slow cooked for nine hours. Wow. And that baby came out. (laughs) I made some Cuban rice with it, rice and beans. Ooh, I love Cuban rice. Yeah. And oh my God, it was delicious. If I must say so myself. <laughs> okay. What will we be drinking? We will be drinking, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, Kenoda 
pub crawl. I think it's called a pub crawler officially with cherries, muddled cherries, jalapeno, uh, rum, and a little bit of seltzer. Beautiful summer drink. Sounds great. And yeah. dessert? Well, I'm not a big dessert person. so I Okay, but I am. I ask you, and I think there'd probably be chocolate involved <laughs> if it's for you. Yeah, maybe a little. Covered strawberry? Ooh, yeah, that would be good. Okay. Done. So next okay. you come, that's what we're having. Has what you've learned in the kitchen helped you at all in the studio? Ooh. Like good that. question, huh? Yeah. Um patience because sometimes you have to let the food and the ingredients marinate together or whatever, you know, let them do their thing that they do together. And that's true in music. That's true in dealing with clients. It's true with everything in life, kind of, you know, you got to give things time to get right. to know each other. Yeah, good answer. Okay, let's talk about little Steven and Southside Johnny. Ooh, okay. Okay, I want to know how all that started. We were doing a, a brainstorming with questions with my staff and I the other day, and I pulled up that picture you had on Facebook, the one where you're on stage in your outfit with. <laughs> they're going oh my god how did this happen i said i'll find person? out that can't be the same person yeah um that came out of my work at power station because uh when i you know i had worked my at this point i was an assistant engineer and steven van zandt little steven was producing a bunch of records he was doing gary u.s bonds and springsteen and oh a bunch of other stuff oh he was doing his first solo album so I was assisting on all these records and got to know him really well. At one point on his record, he was looking for this very, very specific sound. And his guitar tech said, well, you know, Zoe plays the oboe. That kind of sounds like the sound you're looking for. He goes, all right. And so I was like, all right, what are you looking for? So I could bring my oboe in and I played on the record. So we finished the record, you know, we move on with our lives. And then he calls me one day and he goes, you want to go on tour? I was fine doing what I was doing. I was uh, loving life, you know, working at Power Station under all these amazing producers and engineers. And uh, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm only 22 years old. I'm never going to get a chance to go on a world tour. So I think I'm going to take this opportunity. Well, that developed in a, you know, I ended up working with him for 11 years because I continued to not only be part of the band, but to continue to engineer with him. So subsequent records i continued that the nice thing about working with steven was i learned everything about the record industry from him so uh -huh. like publishing and record contracts how agents work and touring and all that stuff i give him full credit for helping me learn all that and then four world tours later <laughs> and wow. like probably eight records or 10 records i don't know now i lost count just with him so you know, well, and a number of wonderful experiences. He was very politically oriented. Right. Got to work, you know, meet Nelson Mandela, did the Sun City record, worked with these amazing artists on that. Got to go to South Africa and was with Nelson Mandela in his cell in on Robin Island. Wow. You know, these are things that you never think you're going to be able to experience. And, uh, you know, they're once in a lifetime, incredible memories. So... And then Southside Johnny, we did a record. We did a couple of records with him and another amazing musician. 
lot of fun on that record. His band was, you know, was a ton of fun. And so, you know, you know, a lot of fun stories like that. Yeah. What's your favorite story working with him? With Steven? Yeah. Um, Aside from the Nelson Mandela one. um, Which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, So many things. Uh, Maybe touring. I was I was a reluctant live musician. Uh-huh. You know, I've heard I've even heard seasoned touring musicians say this: where just before you go on stage, you kind of get this pit in your stomach, and then once you're on there, then it all goes away. Well, I would get the pit in my stomach, and then even on stage, it never went away. <laughs> so I, was, I wasn't a natural performer, I guess. But I want to say, <laughs> how many world tours did you do? Four. Four. <laughs> and even after all of that time, I get that feeling and just, all right, just let's get this over with. <laughs> I'm oh more, which is why I'm more of a behind the scenes person. <laughs> and don't like being in the front, is why I do what I do. I totally understand that. Yeah. Okay. So being on stage, you're in front of your Could community, be, well, right? The US Festival. So there were. 150,000 people at that show (laughs) but you know what those shows are easier than like the club intimate shows where you can really look at people in the eye (laughs) and uh you know pooch was telling me a story about he was doing front of house for a show that had 300,000 people so the people at the end couldn't really see the stage and they were not happy because the i think it was the opening act was really late so he said to have that many people mad at you and all looking at you even though it's not you he says that was kind of scary yeah okay so you're in front of this community people who love to watch you perform right they're out there to see you how do you transition from that that adoration right to being in the studio so where you're you go from you know front facing to behind the scenes was there any issue with you doing that or did you happily transition i as i just mentioned i happily transitioned because i was much more comfortable working behind the scenes and helping others achieve their musical vision you didn't miss that um maybe occasionally but would i do it again no touring i feel is definitely for younger people it's Uh disgusting (laughs) i mean we traveled first class but even that even traveling that way and i was doing other things other than just performing you know because i was handling some of his day-to-day things and so forth. So, which is how I honed my management skills too. Mm-hmm. To mention. You know, so all that stuff I learned working with Steven. Now, are there any similarities between performing on stage and engineering? You know, when you're on stage, there is this energy. You've heard it a million times from performers. Right. There's an energy that you get from the audience and you definitely feed off of that. In the studio, the satisfaction you get from going through the process of making that record and then hearing the final result. There's an enormous thrill and just a great feeling that comes from that too. So yes, there are similarities and you know what? It all stems from because it's music. Right. And the bottom line is how we respond to the music. That's what it is. So live or in the on record or in the studio, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. You've been pretty much every position from your start 
in New York through going on tour. So you know all sides of what you do. What do you tell the people who are just entering the industry now? How do they do it? How do they juggle? Should Do they need to know how to do all these different things? How do you get into this now? No, I mean, I, I accidentally got into all those things. So no, you don't necessarily have to know everything about the industry. But I just say, follow your heart. Find the part of the industry that excites you and be honest with yourself about that. You know, you may, I'll give you an example. You may think, well, it'd be cool to be in the studio with all these rock stars and pop stars and seeing how they make their records. But are you ready for that lifestyle? You right. really want to, you know, you do, you got to do a lot of soul searching, uh, the hours involved and so forth. So there's, there's incredible careers in our industry, in audio and in music that, you know, can lend itself to a normal lifestyle. Yeah. You, know, you want to have a family, you want to have vacations, you want to, you know. Definitely not in the studio. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, okay. Yeah. So it, um, that's what I would say. Be honest with yourself, follow your heart and go for it. Now, was there a defining moment for you when you knew this was exactly what you wanted to do? Yes, it was in college. I went to school for performance. And in my very first semester, the school I went to had an audio program and I got exposed to that. I think I, I had a friend that was in it, right? Mm-hmm. And they brought me to the studio and I was smitten. I was like, oh my God. This is what I want to do. I don't want to, it wasn't going to be a performance. I wasn't going to play the oboe professionally. I knew it when I went in there. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. But getting exposed to the technology and, you know, just getting an idea of how records were made, I knew it was for me. So I changed my major in my freshman year. And the rest is history. (laughs) Were there very many female engineers when you went into this? Were there any? No. I mean, in the in the program I was in, this was at the State University of New York at Fredonia. The program still exists, the Tonemeister program. You have to go in as a music major to be part of the audio program. There was one other woman a year ahead of me. Each class was small. I think there were only 30 students per class, you know, each year. But yeah, there were only a couple of us in the whole four-year program. I'm trying to remember in those days, I had even known of any women engineers at the time, and I can't even think if I did. Um, right, that had done records at that time. But didn't stop you. What's that? No. It didn't stop you. Oh, God, no. I was laser focused. Mm-mm. There was nothing stopping me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming you've managed both a tape recording studio and a digital recording studio. Oh, sure, yeah. How do you manage the studio's transition from one to the other? That's a really good question. It was It was awkward because there were a lot of engineers, and I mean big-time engineers, too, that were reluctant to embrace now when you say digital i don't mean reel-to-reel digital i'm talking about in the box digital right right digital to you know we had reel-to-reel digital machines with the sony yeah. 48s but all right we said no tech but anyway <laughs> <laughs> well there, there can be a little um but once um pro tools was introduced and we started you know incorporating that there was some reluctance by some engineers to to work in the format and you know, it became, it was just slowly over time, uh, you know, it was a kind of a hybrid thing at first where you'd record analog and then you'd dump everything digitally into the box and then you'd work further and do your overdubs further that way. And 
So it was slow. I'd say a few years before it was embraced by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We still do some analog sessions, but you can count them on one hand a year. Can you describe what you do as a studio manager? What exactly does that mean? Um, you're overseeing the business and the clients. So what do I mean by that? You are interfacing with the clients, what their needs are in terms of their technology, what they're planning for their sessions. Do they need any um, hospitality or ancillary things? You're assigning the engineers, the staff to these sessions. You are overseeing the actual business of the studio, meaning, you know, what's the electric bill this month? Why is the water bill this and that? So, you know, there's a financial element to it what else uh you know following up with clients after they're gone uh working with their a and r people and management so it's a lot of different things do you get calls at 2 a.m because something's happening at the studio all the time <laughs> do you get to go on vacation uh it's very difficult and i'm being honest when i say this i haven't had a vacation in I want to say since 2007, a real one. I'll take a long weekend or whatever, but I'm never away from the phone. The phone will ring all weekend, even if I'm away, you know, going to the beach or whatever. I have to right. have my phone on me. So. Pat's in the business. He's a producer engineer. How is it being with someone who's in the same industry, just a different aspect? Is that hard? Is it? Do you understand what he's going through? So it's just no big deal. Yeah, that's why it works, because we totally understand each other. So when I do get the calls in the middle of the night, he's not like, you know, screaming at me or, (laughs) or, you know, or he can't have dinner tonight because he's on a deadline and he's mixing something that the client's waiting for. So, you know, no, it works perfectly. Very symbiotic. Right. And will the two of you ever be able to come up to my golf tournament? Yes, I will. I will say that. This job at the hideout where I am now, beautiful studio in Henderson, Nevada, is a little more uh, relaxed in terms of my ability to come and go simply because I can still have the phone on me, but there's ways that I can still be uh, you know, connected to the business and not be physically here. So, yes. Tell me about the hideout a little bit, about the studio itself. Oh, it's a wonderful four-room facility. It was built in 2007 and uh, went through the uh, same owner until five years ago when uh, Kevin Cherko, who's a record producer, bought it. And he, his son, Kane, uh, and his daughter, Chloe, operated it. And, you know, they're involved in a lot of different things. And they felt like it was time to expand a little bit. And that's when I came on board. They, uh, you know, we've been friends for years. I've known them many, many years, and uh, it was kind of natural to uh, be able to work with them. So they're part of your community. They are. <laughs> <laughs> so did they come looking for you? Because you were at the Palms until the Palms closed, right? Yes. Because of the pandemic. And how long were you at the Palms? Uh, almost 16 years. Okay. And then they came looking for you because they knew the how Palms, great Palms you were? Still, yeah, the Palms is still closed. So yeah, they did. They uh, called and said, what are you up to? <laughs> doing these weekly experiment calls i need something else (laughs) last question one tip for someone who thinks they want to get into the industry in the recording industry in the recording industry okay well i kind of want to go back to what i said earlier 
Make sure you're in it for the right reasons. Um, that you're passionate about it. Because that's, you know what, like, you hear this a lot with anything, but the reason people say that is because it's the only thing that gets you through when the times get really, really tough. Yeah. Tough could be lean times or tough could be you're in the middle of a really hard project and you're, you know, you're pulling your hair out and things might not be going well. The only thing that gets you through those things is that you love the process so much that you know there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. That's all we mean by that. And keep your mind open about the enormous opportunities that are available within the industry. It's not all necessarily necessarily record money. Right. There's wonderful opportunities in, in, in manufacturing. I mean, who wouldn't want to work with Ivana Manley? I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll take that job. <laughs> and she's hiring. <laughs> and she's hiring. Come on, people. So, you know, these are the things that you have to, you know, learn about that there's these careers that are, that, you know, are satisfying and rewarding. And just keep an open mind about your career choice in the industry. Yeah. Okay. I do have one more question. Okay. Okay. What was, what's been the weirdest catering request by a musician? Oh, I like this question. Well, this producer ordered breakfast, right? From yeah. our, one, this is in New York. Yeah. We had it delivered. This was eggs, standard breakfast. Yeah. I a call. Zoe, Zoe, you must come downstairs now. Okay, I run downstairs. I go in the studio. The breakfast is laying in the container. Like what? I I can't eat this. Why can't you eat it? Because the eggs are touching the potatoes. (gasps) (laughs) How old was this producer? He was in his... He wasn't like eight? (laughs) Early 60s. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to order a new one. (laughs) <laughs> separate and everybody everybody was happy after that yeah wow but i'm trying to think i can't think i'm sure there have been uh re- weird requests in advance i just can't think of it right now <laughs> <laughs> well that's a good one i only thought children were like that well same thing yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't think we'll go into that part <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of one and done Don't forget to check out today's show notes and our YouTube channel for more from our guests and subscribe to our KMD Pro weekly resource guide on kmdpro.com. This podcast is produced by Jules Everson and Stephanie LeBond. Our audio engineer is Corey Klotz. We'll see you next time.